Hi, and welcome to episode zero of the I Am Barabbas podcast. Now, I've already recorded episode one of this podcast, and in that podcast, I explain exactly why I chose the name Barabbas to be the name of this podcast. And so if you're curious about that, um, the answers are in that podcast, and I have not dropped that podcast yet because one comes after zero, right? Uh, But it was after I recorded episode two of this podcast series, uh, when I was writing and, and thinking and praying and the Spirit was speaking to me and I was leading a Bible study, that I came up with some new material. And I thought, okay, this would be great for number three. But the more the Spirit spoke to me, I realized, you know what? This should actually be number one. But then the more I thought about it, it's like, no, number one is good as number one and number two is good as number two. But this should be before number one. And so what numbers before one? Zero, right? And uh, I'm not a math major. I'm a I'm a psych major. So I'm glad this is the the, the most math I need right now for what I'm doing. Uh, and so I've decided to name this episode zero. And so yeah, if you're curious about the whole Barabbas thing, uh, stay tuned for for episode one. It'll drop in a couple weeks, and uh, and and that'll all play out. And it'll I think it'll make sense. Uh, but when it comes to episode zero here, it it relates to the article I wrote called A Woman. And a robe, which you can find on filethoughts.com that you've hopefully hopefully already read. If you haven't, I encourage you to go and check it out. And uh, if you don't have the time for that, that's cool. You've already downloaded the podcast, or you're watching already on YouTube. You don't want to, uh, you know, take the time now to go and read that. That's cool. I'll just go ahead and cover the material that's in there at this moment, um, and you can always refer back to the article later. Uh, but in that article, I talk about this story. Uh, that's recorded in Matthew chapter 9. And uh, in Matthew chapter 9, we see that there is a woman who approaches Jesus while he's surrounded by this crowd of people. And she has been bleeding for 12 years, right? And uh, and if you don't know what that's like, um, I, I don't know how many of you would know what that's like. That's, I could only imagine myself what that's like to be a woman who's bleeding uh, for 12 years, uh, that that's like nonstop. Uh, that's it's just, yeah, it's, it sounds terrible. Quite frankly, it sounds horrible. And in the article I mentioned, you know, in, in first century Israel, uh, there was a, uh, a, a kind of culture that went above and beyond what God originally intended when he gave the laws that we find in the book of Leviticus and specifically, specifically, excuse me, specifically in Leviticus uh, chapter 15, he gives a series of laws that have to do with uh, what to do when a male or a female uh, has an issue uh, related to bodily discharges, right? So whether that's, uh, you know, blood coming out of the body, uh, you know, from, from a male's body or a woman's body, or even if it's just, just doesn't have to be blood, any kind of fluid that's coming out of a person's body um, that isn't natural, and is is happening for a prolonged uh, period of time, uh, and 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 he also you know included what is natural as, you know for women as well and and for their periods, and and all of these laws had to do with uh, with keeping um, the society um, sanitary because if you can you know just consider and realize that there were no real sanitary ways of making sure that these kinds of fluids weren't contaminating. Um, people in their lives to the, you know, to the effect of, uh, you know, keeping away uh, any kinds of illnesses, right? Because we know that blood in general uh, can, can carry with it diseases, 
um, and not just blood, right? With with men as well, uh, the fluids that come out of our bodies and and from from our our penises can also carry with it uh, diseases. We call them you know, uh, uh, sexually transmitted infections now, but there are reasons why we uh, try to stay uh, clean and sanitary, and why we wear clothes, and 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 why now uh, there are feminine hygiene products and and different ways to try to uh, control the the exposure that we have uh, to these things. Um, and so in those times, way back, way back when, when God originally gave the laws in Leviticus, what he was trying to do, and if you read the chapter, um, the reason why I'm going into this, because it sounds, uh, it sounds kind of bad, especially in the in, in time that we're in now. It sounds like a lot of punishing towards people who are bleeding, especially towards women, right? Like if, if a woman sits on her bed and she bleeds on it, then the bed has to be taken out and clean, and the woman is unclean, and, and just the, the language there sounds very judgmental um, and doesn't sound very modern and everything else. But these these rules were in place again for for medical reasons. Okay, they weren't about a person's a soul or their value. It was just about making sure people stayed clean and safe. Um, and so by by the time we got to the first century. Uh, the time that Jesus was alive, uh, all of these rules uh, did become about a person's value. They went beyond what God had intended when he first gave the, the laws uh, hundreds of years before. And so um, when you come to this woman and her story, she had been bleeding for 12 years. It's very easy to assume. It's very easy to know. And you can you can read people like Alfred Edersheim, who was a 19th century a Hebrew biblical scholar, um, and then more modern people like Barney Kasdan, um, who will describe, you know, uh, the the culture at that time and how they would sadly isolate a woman like this who was bleeding for 12 years and make her a sort of pariah and say, yeah, you're bleeding and you're contaminating everything around us and there's no way to stop this. And in fact, in, in, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, it, they, they both tell us that she suffered a lot and suffered at the hands of doctors. And both those gospels, you combine them with, with the gospel of, of Matthew, they tell us that she spent all of her money trying to stop this bleeding. Uh, and, and she just was, was kind of hopeless. And if you combine it with what you know in, in Leviticus, uh, you know, everything she touched, anything that she bled on would have to be ritually cleaned. Um, everything was kind of... Uh, you know, hands off for her. She wouldn't have been able to to cook. She wouldn't have been able to like serve her family if she had one. So it all depends, right, on how old she was when the bleeding started. So let's say it was like her first period. Let's say I don't know. She was twelve years old. Then she'd be twenty four. Um, she probably would have. Maybe she would never gotten married because there were laws about whether or not she could have sex when she was bleeding. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, let's say she was. 25 when it happened. Uh, so then she'd be 37. Let's say she had a couple kids before uh, she, she she started bleeding. And then it's like, was she able to hold them and be with her husband, sleep in the same bed? Um, and see, you know, I don't know about you, but because of my training and having a counseling degree, I often think about all the different angles that can be covered in, in a one person's life. Um, and just this ability to try to be empathetic to a person's situation. And I realized that, man, whatever the situation was, she had to be so alone and so much pain uh, 
emotional turmoil and not only the physical pain, but just emotional and psychological, mental turmoil over her, her ailment. And, uh, and she tried, like I said, and you can read the gospels uh, to, to get healed in so many different ways. Now, at some point, she hears about this man named Jesus who has been traveling around and healing people. And so she figures, hey, maybe he can heal me too. And in fact, I think it's more than a maybe. She, she goes to go see him. And by the time she catches up with him in Matthew chapter 9, uh, she uh, sees him and he's surrounded by this big crowd of people. And if you read chap- Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus had just um, gotten off the boat and into his home area, which is, was Capernaum. That was kind of his adult, considered to be his adult hometown, his home base for his ministry, also considered to be Peter's hometown. And so uh, he had just gotten back there and um, he had um, a meal at Matthew's house. He had called Matthew to be his disciple at the beginning of chapter nine. They had this you know, dinner together and there was all these great discussions they were having. Um, and then he, Jesus was, was, was approached by a man who said his daughter had died. And so he's like, oh, can you come raise her from the dead? And Jesus said, sure, uh, I can do that. And so he got up and went. And so now this crowd is just like pressing around Jesus because they, they want to see him. They want to, um, you can assume, because Jesus wasn't healing anybody, that they knew that he was going to go raise a little girl from the dead. And so they wanted to be close to it, right? It's like uh, if you've ever been to a concert or anything like that, you know, you want to be close to the front row. You want to be up near the front uh, and you don't want to miss the action or you're at a football game, whatever. You just know you're there. Or really, it's more like when you see a celebrity is around, you want to be as close as you can or not me really, but you, I see that on TV, right? People are there taking pictures, flashes and all that stuff. They want to be as close as they can. And so this woman sees Jesus and that's what's happening. And she's thinking to herself, if I could just touch the edge of his robe, I'll be healed. That's all I need to do. Just touch the edge of his robe. But if you remember, I briefly mentioned earlier, if you read the article uh, that I wrote, if she touches him, technically, that's not violating the law because she didn't bleed on it, as, as, at least as far as I understand Leviticus 15. And I read a couple of commentaries, a little a couple of research, you know, some research. But the way that things changed by the time the first century came about and the way that, you know, the religious leaders had, had really kind of, you know, increased the strictness of the law and their interpretations of the law. I'm assuming that the belief at that point was that even just touching a woman like this would make her impure or at least make his robe impure, right? So I'm thinking that she knew if she could just touch the robe and get away, she would protect him from becoming impure and also get the healing she needed and also, you know, get away with anybody there knowing exactly what was wrong with her as well, because she'd be pressing through a crowd and touching all of these people. And making them unclean as well, right? It wasn't again the the spirit of the law or even the letter of the law, but it was what it had become through the interpretation of men who were in control of the law or what they thought the law was supposed to mean. And so she goes ahead, and this is Matthew chapter nine, verse twenty. It says this: Then a woman who suffered from bleeding for twelve years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, "If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well." In verse twenty-two. Jesus turned and saw her, have courage, daughter. He said, your faith has saved you. 
and the woman was made well from that moment. Now, there's not a lot of detail given to us there. If you read Mark's gospel account and Luke's gospel account, you see a lot more. And uh, what you see in those two accounts is that when she first touched Jesus, Jesus's response was, who touched me? And it was Peter who responded by saying, what do you mean who touched you? Like everybody here is pressing up against you, right? Uh, what do you mean someone touched you? And Jesus said, no, somebody touched me because I felt power leave from me. And remember, she just touched the, the fringe of his robe and uh, Jesus, having been a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi this time, he would have been wearing underneath his outer robe, this inner robe, this uh, 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 what's called a talith, uh, and so would have had like these tassels, um, and that's what they mean by the fringe of his robe uh, that that the Gospels mention, the fringe of his robe, just like these little tassels that kind of hang off the ends, um, not really fancy, just these little knotted uh, things that are supposed to represent the laws and the commandments and everything else. And so she just touched the edge of that, and he felt his power, the power that God had given him, the authority, right, that God had given him from heaven to heal and to do the, the mission that he was meant to do as the Messiah. He felt it actually leave through that little, like, frayed string on a robe <laughs> to heal a woman. And he felt that, like, it's, it's incredible, right, that he felt that. And, and when he called out, the that that fact he said who touched me uh the other two gospels mentioned that the woman was terrified because again she felt like she got caught right like oh man got caught i just did something that made him unclean and everybody else finds out oh man this is big trouble but to i'm sure her amazement as a rabbi he doesn't say you know you touched me you were unclean you were bleeding what did you do that for? Now we've all got to go to the temple and become, you know, ritually clean again and, you know, rinse off in water and all this stuff. No, he just looked at her and he calls her daughter in the other, in the other gospels. And he, he tells her to have courage and that, she, that her faith has saved her and he sends her on her way. Now, uh, it seems like that's the end of the story, right? But there's actually a lot more to her story, a lot more to her story. And, and here's where uh, I've, uh, you know, been learning more about Jesus and about the faith that he authored and perfected. I mentioned that in the article, um, and this is really important. This is why this is episode zero, uh, because, um, you know, this past year has been tough on everybody, I know, and there's been so much heartache, so much loss. I know a lot of people want to act like um, it hasn't been that bad. Uh, and for some people, I know it. it Maybe it hasn't been. Some people have made money this year. Uh, they've been working, and then they qualify for stimulus money. Uh, maybe they go out, and they've been working out, too. And so maybe this year hasn't even been that tough on some people, and I, I get that. Uh, but a lot of people have lost uh, lost uh, friends and family. A lot of people have grieved. A lot of people have gotten sick uh, and, and suffered um, a lot of loss. Um, even though they didn't lose lives, they, they suffered in other ways. Um, a lot of people lost friends and uh, lost close friendships because of uh, the politics and some of the things that have been going on in the country at large has 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 gone into the church as well, and so it's been very difficult. Um, I've seen you know that happen on social media. I've seen that happen uh, in friends in their lives, and I've I've had it. I've experienced that in my life as well. 
And so it's been difficult. And, uh, and I mentioned in the article, if there's one way that I would describe this, this year, I wouldn't describe it by any of those things though. I would, uh, with my perspective, I would describe it, um, as a year of rediscovering the faith that Jesus authored and perfected. And, um, and so, uh, this story for me is an example of that, because when I, uh, look at this story, I used to think that this was the end of that because that's what I was always taught, that this was it because the main focus on this story was on what Jesus was about to do and that was go raise a little girl who had died. And that's important. He goes and he does that. That's an amazing miracle to raise anybody from the dead. In fact, I've learned so much more about Lazarus's resurrection in the last couple of weeks that it's amazing. Uh, to me, and it's it's really helped me grow also as a, as a counselor in the idea of, of ministry. Uh, but this woman's story doesn't actually end here, uh, and and so uh, where does it continue? Well, it's in uh, Matthew 14. So um, I'm going to click on on this right here and pull up Matthew 14. If you want to kind of look along, if you can um, have a Bible with you, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and read this on Matthew in Matthew 14. At the end of Matthew 14, at, at verse 34. Uh, it says that when they had crossed over, and speaking of Jesus and his disciples, they were in a boat again. This is following Peter's attempt to walk on the water, and he did that, right? But he uh, began to sink and everything. So um, it says that when they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret. So Jesus, the disciples, uh, they landed this place called Gennesaret. And it says, when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. Now, in the past, and I don't remember exactly who taught this and where I was, I learned this, but I know it was in my home church or it was someone related to uh, the Plymouth Brethren tradition, right? Because I wasn't uh, for that long outside of that tradition. And I know for sure it was someone belonging to, to that tradition. Um, I learned that this place was the place that, um, or close to the place where Jesus had performed a miracle where he cast out two demons and uh, or depending on who you read, so it's Mark chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 8, actually, where Jesus had cast out a demon and the demon went into a, a herd of pigs and the pigs then went into the sea. And as a result, the people in that town freaked out because they saw this whole thing happen. And so they told Jesus to leave because they were not happy with what they saw. They were scared and everything else. And so when uh, this person, I don't remember exactly who again, uh, got to this passage or they used it when they, when they, when they taught that story, they then went to this passage and they said that, uh, when Jesus came here, they, uh, the people then recognized Jesus as returning and it's like they repented. They were sorry for kicking him out or asking him to leave. I should say they didn't kick him out, but they asked him to leave. And it's like they had repented. So finally their hearts had accepted the miracle and they're casting out the demons, and maybe it was the testimony the the the, the people who um, had the demons taken out of them, and and you know over time they're like, wow, this these people are normal again, and so they they recognize them and they ask Jesus to come, and and they brought everybody who 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 was there who was sick to come and be healed, right? Uh, and so I was, you know, I'm, I'm leading this Bible study with some family members, and I was studying this passage, and I was focusing on the first part of the chapter. For most of the day as I was uh, prepping for the Bible study. And then when I got to this part, I was like, okay, I remember this uh, from, you know, way back in the day, this is what this is about. And I just wanted to confirm. So I looked at the map and looked at the name Gennesaret and 
I looked at the map again. I was like, well, wait a minute. This Ganesharit is not on the same side of uh, Gadara or the Gadarenes where that pig story happened. They're actually on opposite ends of, of the map. And I clicked on it again. I zoomed in and I started Googling stuff. because, like, what's going on here? Why am I not seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing here, right? And uh, then I found like this one blog post that talked about what I thought I was supposed to, supposed to be seeing. And they talk about Gennesaret and Gadara, the name of Decapolis. And so as you know, getting some confirmation bias, right? That, that means when you believe in something to be true, and then you start searching around looking for something to support that belief. Um, and so I was starting to get some of that, but then I was like, wait, wait, what am I doing? Like, what, what makes this one blog uh, that I found on Google or through you know, searching uh, more accurate than the maps that I'm seeing with my, with my eyes? Uh, but, uh, you know, my time ran out. It was almost time for the Bible to start. I had to set up some equipment, get ready for Zoom or whatever. So I was like, oh, okay, you know what? Forget it. I don't know what this region is, why these people recognize Jesus, but it's not the pig story. It's not that, that demon-possessed man story, whatever. And some of you who are watching this, you probably know where I'm going with this, right? Because you've studied this and you know exactly what, what this is about. Uh, but for me, this is brand new. This is just a couple of weeks old. So it's, it's pretty cool for me. And so I'm excited to tell this story. Uh, as I was leading the Bible study, uh, as the group was talking about Peter sinking in the water, I started to look ahead because that's, if you ever lead a Bible study, you know, that's what you do. You look ahead to try to remember, okay, some of the thoughts. And I got to the passage and I was, again, I was like, oh man, like, what is this about? And the spirit, you know, look, got me to verse 36, right? Which I haven't read yet. And it says, they begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe. And as many as touched it were healed. That's when the Spirit really spoke to me clearly and said, Go back to Matthew 9 and the woman. And I was like, Whoa. I went back to Matthew 9. So everybody's like doing their discussion. I had my, my wife sitting next to me and a couple of people on Zoom. And, and so I'm, I'm going back to um, the passage on, in, in Matthew chapter 9. I'm looking at it like, The woman in the robe right? The 12 years of bleeding. And I go back to this, it's a robe. And I looked at the map again, Gennesaret. It's not that far from Capernaum. They're, they're actually just, you know, a few miles apart. This must be her hometown. So what must have happened was she, you know, was in Gennesaret and she heard about this healer in Capernaum. And so she went up to Capernaum to get healed. And right at the time when, when Jesus was asked to go heal this little girl was also the time that Jesus, uh, that, that this woman um, caught up to Jesus. And it was like working out all at the right time, according to, you know, God's plan and what Jesus knows is what's happening. And she went and touched him and she was healed. And then she must gone home. Right. And everybody must've been, and if, if I don't know about you, but if you've been suffering for 12 years and, and I actually, I have a story related to this, but I'm going to finish this up. She must have gone home and started telling people like, hey, look at me, I'm clean. Or I don't know, maybe if she was at home and she had to sleep in a separate bed. Uh, and actually, my, my wife and I and my mom, not, not too long ago, we were all hanging out uh, watching a movie as an as a Indian movie called The Great Indian Kitchen. And in it, this woman marries into a, a Brahmin caste, which is like the, the highest priestly caste. It's the highest caste in, uh, overall in India, but they're, they're because they're priests. 
and they have uh, very similar rules and laws about uh, about women who have their periods as first century Jewish people uh, did. And this is like modern day movie. This isn't set in some ancient time. And in this movie, it depicted how this woman, she was responsible for everything in the kitchen. She's scrubbing and cleaning. She had to cook every meal and, and everything else. Actually produces a lot of anxiety watching this movie, seeing how much responsibility she had and how she had to do it all on her own. Uh, but when she had her period, she actually had to go off to a bedroom and she wasn't allowed to do anything. She wasn't allowed to cook. She wasn't allowed to clean. Uh, she she had to stay in a separate bed. The, the, the her husband wasn't even allowed to enter into the bedroom that she was in. Uh, it was actually the only time she was able to rest, but she hated it because she couldn't do anything. She couldn't even leave the room, right? They brought her food. Like it, it was a terrible exist, existence. And I could imagine like if if that was her existence for 12 years, what would be the first thing you do when you got home? Like if if let's say this woman didn't have a separate room, right? Because that's a luxury. And this movie was luxury because these people were wealthy. Let's say her bed was outside of the house be like grabbing that mattress and like dusting it off and like bringing it back in and people are like what are you doing what are you taking the mattress inside for it's like yo i'm done bleeding i'm done and like, what do you mean you're done bleeding i'm healed it's like oh the doctors fixed you you got a cure like no i didn't get a cure there wasn't no doctor i went and saw the healer up in capernaum the healer's a healer in capernaum yes i saw a healer in capernaum how do you heal you this is the thing he didn't actually really do much. He was just walking and I snuck up behind him and I touched his robe, like the edge of his robe. What do you mean you touch his robe? Yeah, I just snuck up behind him. I touched the fringe of his robe. You know, the, the, the talith, like the little knot that's hanging out the back of his robe. Yeah. And and immediately I felt the, the blood dry up like it stopped. I felt it. I felt it go away. Mark, I think it was Mark's gospel. It's all running in my head now, but I think it was Mark's gospel that says, Felt the, she felt the plague that was in her leave her. The plague. The plague of blood. Going back to the idea of, of, of the, the, the ten plagues in Egypt, right? Just like a plague of blood left her. And they would have been like, so you just touched his robe and you were healed. Yeah. And it was gone. And then what? Then I was about to get out of there, but he called me out because he felt it. The power leave him. And, uh, but then he just said that I was his daughter. And he said that I had faith and that I can go home. I have courage and, and to go in peace. So I'm here and I'm happy. And like, that's it. That's it. And so now Jesus comes to this spot. He didn't sail up to Capernaum where he could have, where he normally does. Instead, he sails specifically to Gennesaret, which is going to require that they have to walk a little further up to where he, he goes home or where he calls home. But he does it on purpose, right? And when he gets there, everybody recognizes him. Why? Because of this woman and her testimony. And here's what's really amazing. And this is where uh, the idea for this podcast was important to record now instead of later. When this woman shared her testimony and these people came forward and said to Jesus, okay, we're ready to be healed. Now uh, we're going to line up and start touching your robe. Okay, Jesus didn't say, "My robe." No, 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 no. Uh, that's all wrong. You got it. You got the message wrong. Like, okay, I know she touched my robe and she got healed, but let me sit you down. Let me tell you the right, 
way for me to heal you. First, you have to have faith, right? And first, you have to know my name. And first, you have to call me by the right name. And, um, you know, before you, before I heal you, you know what, there's, there are some requirements, okay. Uh, before you enter into this relationship, uh, before I give you, uh, what you're looking for, you've got to meet requirement A, B, and C, and then D and F. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that to her and her testimony. He actually honors her testimony. He honors her voice. He honors what she has to say about him. What she had to say about him was that he is so powerful and he is so wonderful and so great that all you have to do is touch his robe and you'll be healed. Is that good theology? Yes. Why? Because it brings people to Jesus. Now saying that is going to make some people sit back and be like, oh, what do you mean? Yeah, if it brings people to Jesus, it brings people to Jesus. And it brought people to Jesus. And not just one person. It brought a whole town of people, a whole vicinity of people to Jesus. And you notice what happens, right? It says, and I'll read it again. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe. Only touch. Only. That's what they only wanted to do. They didn't want him to, to put his hands on their head. They didn't want to touch his feet. They didn't want him to hug them. They didn't want him to do anything else, but they didn't want him to do anything. They wanted to do the thing. They wanted to do the thing. And they wanted to touch the end of his robe. And it says, as many as touched it were healed, which means he said, come on down. Come on, come and touch it. Let me heal you. Because that was the faith that she had. And that was the faith and testimony that she gave to those people in, those, in that town. And so then that was the faith that they brought to Jesus. And that was the faith that he honored. That's like a, an amazing story. And, and no one else is, is told to have been healed this way or come to Jesus this way. But this is how the whole vicinity and this whole area of Gennesaret, how they come to Jesus. It's just amazing. But that's not how things work in the church today. Uh, or at least um, not just today, but for uh, years and years and years. Uh, the church today likes to control the narrative. The, control, the, the church today likes to make sure that they are controlling the testimonies of the people who sit inside of their walls. And that's where I experience spiritual abuse. Uh, and and um, I experienced a lot of spiritual abuse growing up. I didn't even know what it was called. I actually, um, you know, read a book by Diane Langberg uh, over the, la the course of the last uh, month and a half about spiritual abuse. She called it uh, redeeming, um, redeeming power, and it's about abuse and authority in the church. And uh, in it, she talks about all the dynamics that are at play there. And um, and so, if you want to read the book, uh, I, I highly encourage it. Uh, but I didn't understand exactly what had happened to me uh, back in 2012 until I read her book. And then I realized that I was a victim of spiritual abuse. And it was um, at the church I had called home since I was a, a small child. Uh, I was, um, I was when, I, when I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior, 
I had been attending that church. I went to Sunday school at that church from from a very young age. Uh, there was a, a short time period where, you know, we, we uh, my some of my family members tried to start an Indian Plymouth Brethren Church, and then there was you know arguing and fighting, and so we we ended up coming back to uh, the the American version of the Plymouth Brethren Church here in Miami. It's called the Bible Truth Chapel, uh, and it's still here. In Miami, and so I, I grew up going to that church. Um, I, I was baptized at that church, and I have very fond memories going, uh, being at that church. Um, there are a lot of people there that I love at that church, and uh, and then when I went away to college, um, I didn't actually wanted to go away to college, and I had two reasons: because my family was still here in Miami, and because the church here in Miami. I, I had no desire to leave at all, but because I had gotten into you know, University of Florida, that was supposed to be a good school. And so I, I, I was supposed to leave uh, to attend, a, you know, a good university. Um, and eventually I found my way uh, back um, and I moved back to South Florida in 2000, uh, late 2008. And despite the fact, uh, you know, living 40 miles away, I only wanted to be uh, attending Bible Truth Chapel. Uh, that was my hope and my goals. And so I did that. Um, and I was faithfully attending and 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 serving there and doing everything I could, um, like I was raised to. Um, and uh, you know, over over the years, over my life, uh, I always had this one struggle that would never go away. Um, and it was similar to this woman's struggle in a lot of different ways. It was something that uh, afflicted me for about twelve years. It was something that. Uh, um, it wasn't consistently over 12 years. It was for uh, a long period of time, but it was uh, every March to through September, I would suffer with depression. And it was a debil- debilitating depression from the time I was 16 to 28. Uh, I'm 37 now. So this was, this was running uh, um, for uh, going back to nine years now is when it ended. Uh, but it, it was a real struggle for a long time. And when you're in depression, uh, you know, and you're depressed, uh, you, you tend to isolate yourself from people because, you know, because of those feelings of sadness and loneliness and, 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 and you're always crying and you just don't know why uh, you're so sad. And there's all this, all these emotions that are going on. Uh, you know, people invite you out and stuff. You say, no, you don't want to do it. Um, so you put yourself into that place where you're alone. Um, and then you say no so many times that people stop inviting you. And then you see them hanging out, then it hurts even more because you're like, why didn't they invite me? But you kind of did that to yourself, right? So uh, you, you, you see yourself as a pariah. You see yourself as uh, someone who's unclean, someone who's unworthy, someone who's not worth even uh, being invited out, uh, being seen um, around other people, right? So I kind of relate to a little bit to uh, this woman and her bleeding. Um, I just didn't seem like I was part of society, especially during those times of depression. Um, unlike her, though, I would get some relief because, you know, the depression would lift at some point and then I would be good for another six months, but then it would come back. And so struggling, struggling. Um, and then in 2010, I started to get my master's degree in psychology and I started to learn a lot more about depression. And I was working with people and I was getting counseling and I was counseling and, um, the cycles would keep coming back and I was being prayed for and everything else. And uh, the more I talked to professors and everything, it's like, you know, it didn't seem like, and I'd see therapists, it's like, it's not like it's a biological thing where you need medication. We don't think it's, uh, and there was one wise person who said, I just think it really is something spiritual, but they didn't really know how to help with that. 
And so I was talking to a cousin of mine who uh, had been uh, fasting or learning more about fasting. And so she told me about this book in particular about fasting. I had never tried fasting before in my life and didn't really know much about fasting as far as I knew about fasting was that it's kind of an old thing that you don't do, right? You don't sew on old patches to new garments, that kind of thing. So we don't fast. At least that's how I always understood fasting from the Plymouth Brethren tradition. And if I got that wrong, hey, that's what I, that's what I, I remember learning um, in, in, in that tradition, that church. That's, that's, that's what I remembered. And so uh, I, didn't, I didn't really know much about it. And uh, I, I thought it was 2012, and I'm almost done. I'm wrapping up my, um, my master's this spring. It's about early March, and I was at Barnes & Noble, and I really felt the depression coming on. It's, it's strange. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. You can just feel it coming and you don't know what to do, uh, how to stop it. It's like this train that's just coming forward and your foot's stuck in the tracks. And you really just see the light coming. It's getting brighter and brighter, but it's not light that's, that's, that you want to welcome into your life because once it hits you, boom, it's darkness. And so um, I was just walking around Barnes & Noble. I was supposed to be studying, but couldn't focus. And I saw the book on fasting that my cousin had mentioned, and I didn't have like much money in my bank account, but it was... Uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to buy it. And so I bought it and uh, went home. I started to read it. And um, he talked about something about these spiritual battles and a 40-day fast and uh, something called a Daniel fast, which I didn't know anything about. It was like, oh, vegetables, fruit, water, that kind of thing. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. Right? And so I did that. And during that fast, it was it's incredible what happens when you're fasting from food because I've tried other fasts since then. You fast from technology or fast from TV, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And man, it's so different because when you fast from TV, you end up reading books. Um, you know, you, you don't necessarily pray more. Uh, you don't necessarily fall on your knees and, and read the word and, and, and just speak to God and, and hear him more. You don't really do that. But when you fast from food, even if you're just fasting from certain foods and you're doing a Dan like a Daniel kind of fast, uh, it's, it hits you different because your body is is really, it man, when you really, you can't have vegetables, like you can only have vegetables and fruits and, and water and you you want to go to McDonald's or, or you want to hit Burger King up and, 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 and your body's just like hitting those cravings or you just want like peanut butter and bread uh, and you can't. Uh, the, and, and, and the best thing you can do is getting on your knees and pray. It's, it's something else. And when that was going on for 40 days, uh, I can tell you that because uh, I, I look back on my journal, the journaling the whole time, the first, I don't know, five, six days, I was crying like a baby. I was complaining. I was just like, oh, God, like save me from this and stop this pain and that pain. And so, so many hurts, right? And I've been through a lot of stuff. I, uh, my dad was an alcoholic and a drug abuser and he was a predator of children and, and he did a lot of terrible things uh in throughout his lifetime and then he died in 2003 so now we're talking about 2012 so i you know there's just like so much pain and so much hurt um in my lifetime and there was suicidal thoughts and and so i'm not just you know writing about things that um aren't you know that dark there's some really dark things there but i but i'm looking back on it, i was like i sounded so whiny but after about day six or day seven, the tone of the writing changed. Now, I wasn't really complaining at all. I was, I was worshiping. And by the time we get to day 40, I mean, 
talk about depression. There was no depression. I was so full of joy and light. And I think back on those times, I was so happy. And I can testify to you right now, it is 2012. Well, that was 2012. Right now it's you know 2021. I haven't had a moment of depression since then, not even like remotely. The only time I ever get sad now is when I commit sin. And I'm sad and I mourn because I commit sin. And I, I look to God and I'm like, man, what did I do that for? That like grieves me. Or if I watch like certain episodes of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like the one where his dad comes back and he's like, why you don't want me, man? Like that, that hurts sometimes too. But other than that, like I really don't, I don't get, I don't get depressed at all. I want to say this, like, I'm not going to, I'm not saying that that fasting is like a cure-all for depression. I mentioned earlier, right, that I, I talked to therapists and professors and, you know, the medication wasn't the route for me and, and the therapy wasn't really like, the stuff I need, they, they, through their wisdom, they discerned, like, you know, this, there was a spiritual aspect here and the fasting. And you look at Isaiah 58, the fasting was, was the way to remove some of those, those yokes and to break some of those chains that were, that I was bound to, that was linked to the depression. Okay. It was, it was, there was a spiritual cause there. And that's why the fasting worked specifically for me in that case. Okay. So I don't want to, make it sound like all you need to do is fast and pray and, and your, your depression will go away. That's I'm a mental health professional. That's not the point of the story. here. The point of the story is, and the testimony is that when we have spiritual afflictions, spiritual afflictions that can manifest in a lot of different ways, it can look like depression. It can look like anxiety. It can look like, you know, certain mental health disorders, but it can look like other things as well. It doesn't have to be just that. Um, fasting is the way that God can reveal those things to us and break those bonds. Because when you fast and you pray, you get to this place of worship and this place of just enjoying his light. Now, at the time I was ministering at the church a lot. I was at this Plymouth Brethren Church, Bible Truth Chapel, and I was, I was preaching on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and I was doing Wednesday night Bible studies. And sometimes I'd open up the bulletin and I would see my name on there for five times and I'd be like, whoa, I've got a lot of studying to do this this month, right? Because they were using me a lot. And so after the fast was over, um, I, I was I was like, you know what, at the time to make it easier, I was just going through First Corinthians because I was speaking so many times, like, you know what, I'm just gonna do First Corinthians. And I decided, you know what, I'm gonna depart from First Corinthians this time. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do fasting and talk about fasting. Cause like I said, from the brother in church, we didn't really talk about fasting. So I spoke about fasting. And I, I was very careful about it because I know the tradition. I know that if you speak on something new, you know, you, you can get walloped, right? Because these people know the scriptures really well, uh, the, way, the way that we do our teaching. If you're not familiar with, with the, the tradition, I keep calling it a tradition because there's no formal denomination. There's no board. There's no, no setup where they, that it's like, it's not like the Southern Baptists or Presbyterians stuff like that. It's independently run churches that are based on traditions. And so different churches will look different. Some churches have the Lord's Supper at 930 on Sunday morning. Some have it at, at six o'clock at night on a Sunday, like where they have their freedom to do that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I'm very familiar with all that. So I was very careful to go through Isaiah 58 and Matthew chapter six and, and to cover um, all of my bases um, back then. And, um, and and so I delivered that message and I gave a testimony, just like I just here told now about how God can use uh, fasting and how it's important actually for even New Testament believers to practice fasting uh, when it's appropriate. 
And so I felt it went well. And uh, I was encouraged by some of you know, the, most of the responses afterwards. And uh, we're talking about a lot of people, I, I don't, maybe 40, 30, 40 people, you know, maybe less, 25, maybe more, 55. I don't know. This is nine years ago. Uh, and, but afterwards, I was asked by the elders to, you know, meet with them. So I said, okay, this is rare. I, that, that never happens unless someone needs to tell me that someone doesn't like the fact that I wasn't wearing a necktie. And, uh, and that was always just a big joke, right? The elder would say, hey, uh, so-and-so, or not so-and-so, somebody's telling me that you should wear a necktie. And so I'm telling you that so I can tell them that I told you. And, and I've just laughed and be like, okay, you told me, great. So I never had to really wear a necktie, right? That was the only other meeting with the elder I'd ever, ever, ever had to do. So the elder sat me down this time. This felt way more serious. And uh, one of them, they had the Bible open proceeded to tell me how my message about fasting was wrong. Again, this was nine years ago, so all the details I don't remember exactly, but, uh, and what passages they use and how they justified what they were about to tell me. But what they told me was I placed burdens on the people. That I, I basically, I sinned against their congregation by, by what I preached on that, that, that night. It was a Sunday night service, I believe. And so I walked away from that meeting disillusioned. I didn't know really what had happened. And so I went to two men, um, Frank Gomez, who was my Sunday school teacher for high school from ninth grade to 12th grade, and Nelson Jimenez, who I looked up to a lot. Uh, and, you know, I talked about this stuff with my dad, his, his family, he and his wife, they would and they'd pick up my siblings and I and, and take us to church and, you know, whatever, my, whatever help my mom needed, like he, he was always there. And so I asked the two of them, you know, what I did wrong. And I told them what the elders had told me and, and both of them in agree. And I asked them separately, both of them agreed. They said the same thing. No, you, you handled the word well. You, you, you rightly divided the word was the phrase that I heard both times. And so I didn't get it. Um, but what proceeded to happen after that is uh, I was shut out. You know, uh, I went, like I said, from speaking multiple times in a month to nothing at all. Uh, I would not uh, feel like I was welcome at the church anymore. I didn't feel like I was part of the church anymore. This is a church that I had grown up in since I was you know, very, very young. Right. I mentioned that earlier. And uh, at the time, I was 28 years old. So it's like almost over 20 years of existence at this church with the short, you know, time frame where I had gone away. Uh, it's not short, I guess like six, seven years while I was away for college and coming back and stuff like that. But I always felt like this was my home. And every Sunday I went to that church, I just felt like I didn't belong. Now, I wasn't depressed, but it was like all those feelings were back. And it just was strange. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And at the time, uh, a girl that I eventually ended up meeting, or marrying, excuse me, uh, you know, she had her church. And I didn't really like any other church style, right? Uh, our church is, the tradition is very quiet, contemplative worship. In 9.30 to 10.30 is the Lord's Supper communion every Sunday. Uh, and there's no there's no music. You just sing a cappella and you, you read the Bible, 
you, you just think about the Lord and his suffering on the cross and, and, you, and you worship that way. And so I've visited other churches before and I, I'm not into all the music and, and everything else. It's, not, it's hard to concentrate. But she'd tell me, you know, I'd talk to her about it or I mentioned to other people, but not like a lot of details. And uh, just like, you know what, maybe I should just start going somewhere else. And her church started like at 11 something. So it was important for me to do Lord's Supper every Sunday. So I just started going to the Lord's Supper from 930 to 1030. I'd hang out a little bit with some of the younger group that were there. Uh, the younger, like the younger crowd, like my, uh, my brother or some of his friends, stuff like that. And then I would leave. I'd go to her church um, and um, I would just sit there. You know, people would be standing up and raising their hands and, and, and singing and all that kind of thing. But I just sit there and I'd have my Bible open and I'd be reading. And uh, then the, the messages would start. And uh, the, the pastor there, uh, Rob Forrest, uh, you know, he, his style of speaking was good uh, for me because he would speak a lot about identity and, and how we are the beloved and that kind of thing. And that's actually a big part of what episode one of this podcast series is about. And so, that was necessary for me. It was healing uh, for me. Uh, but uh, man, I just didn't feel like I had a home. I felt like I was wandering. And nobody asked me where I was going or what I was doing. Not, not sincerely. Anyway. Nobody asked me, you know, what happened, why I wasn't ministering as much. And I was still doing like this Tuesday night outreach thing where we play soccer and share gospel and everything. But uh, that was it. Uh, because that wasn't with like the main church. That was just a bunch of people that came out, play soccer that didn't go to church there. And that ministry was growing. We'd get 30, 40 people, the strangers to come out there and minister. And eventually the elders, you know, felt like that needed to be shut down too. Because that didn't fit their narrative either. Um, and I want to go into all those details too, but I, I had to stand up for some of the people that helped me with that ministry. And I was like, I didn't like what they were saying about them. And I said, no, you don't want them. You don't want me. And I already knew that. I already knew that. And eventually I married, uh, you know, my wife and, and I just committed to going to her church and, and helping them and doing their youth group and, and ministering there. And I started speaking there because, and I, and I just left. The church, and I, I know that they just assume it because I got married that I left and I was committed to them and, and you know, went to the church that my wife was going to. But no, if, if this abuse hadn't happened, and it was abuse, this is the definition of spiritual abuse. They sought to protect the system that they served. And it was, it was evil what had happened. And it, it hurts me to say that because, um, especially with one of the elders, like, I'm, I'm close to his sons and his wife and him too. And, and honestly, I just feel like he was complicit. He was just silent, complicit in what was going on. And, and he didn't want to do what, what, was, what was done, but he like had to. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But in reading this book, and reading the book by Diane Langberg on, on redeeming power and abuse and authority in church, you can um, just see how that, that happens in churches. A lot uh, that you have, um, especially with with in systems where you only have two who are in charge. Uh, you have one who has this authority, and uh, one who ends up being uh, 
along for the ride sometimes. And so, yeah, it pains me to bring up this, this story now because I feel like it's, it's harmful to, you know, reputations. Uh, but if I don't speak against it, then what was spoken against me and what was evilly spoken and was wrongfully spoken against me continues to be spoken. Um, and, and in, in this, and in this book by Lang, uh, Diane Langberg, uh, she, she talked about how, um, you know, for, for the power of someone who's been abused and traumatized to be exercised, the first thing that they need to do is exercise their voice. They need to speak. And I mentioned earlier, you know, what is this ministry about? What is, uh, Style Thoughts and the I Am Barabbas podcast about, um, you know, there's one thing about what the name is means, but what the ministry is for, it's about helping people who have lost their voice because of abuse in the church find that voice. And this is me, and this is my opportunity to now give voice to what I went through. And and that was a long time period. You know, it's, I told a story. Um, uh, but that was May 2012 when I was sat down and told all the ways I was wrong. And then all that, that time of abuse and I was silenced and I sat there and I sat, I went from sitting, you know, towards the middle front of the church to all sitting in the back row to eventually just leaving and not really having anybody thoughtfully ask me, Hey, you know, what's going on with you? That happened over the course of two years uh, or a year and a half. Uh, and I was just silenced. And so this is my chance to now speak out against that. And, and, and it's funny, when I first thought about recording all this and I actually did a trial run and, and, and fig- try to figure out how I was going to say things, my wife heard how I was speaking and she was worried. She's like, are you sure you should be naming the church and everything else? And I said, absolutely, I should be because how else am I supposed to tell my story? And how else am I supposed to get, supposed to get my voice back? And how else am I supposed to be an example to the people that I'm going to serve and minister to? Because that's how we overcome the trauma that we've been through. And that's kind of the, that's the first step. And to do it in a safe space. And for me, I've done it in the safe spaces. And now I'm doing it out in the open because I'm not afraid. And actually, after I had done that uh, trial run, that night, I had a dream. I had a dream that I was at Bible Truth Chapel, and I was sitting right by the office, the main door uh, to the office that uh, the other elder, the one who had all the power and the control, um, um, usually was in. And uh, he opened the door in this dream, and he was laughing and kind of scoffing and mocking me. And in this dream, he said, um, come on, Reggie, come on, let me give you a date. Let me give you a date to speak. Well, when do you want to speak? Uh, how about how about August 28th? And in the dream, I actually thought to myself, oh man, if he gives me a date to speak, then I probably shouldn't post that video. And then I said, okay, fine. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take August 28th. And he said, okay, great. All right, good. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you what you want. Just mocking me and, and laughing and smiling. And then he closed the door. And then I, I walked away and then I walked into the sanctuary and there was a service going on, but it was really weird because everybody was standing and there were all the women, a lot of the women were in the back and the women were, were, were trying to be heard. The women were trying to 
to be heard in the church. They were trying to minister. They were trying to speak about God. But there were a lot of men and a couple of women, women in the front who were hissing at them and pointing backwards and telling them to be quiet. And then I stood next to the women who were in the back and I had the sense like, no, they, they need to be heard. Why aren't they allowed to be heard? Their voices need to be heard. And it got so intense that I said, you know what? No, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. Why am I here? And so I walked out. And as I was walking out, there were a couple of people who, who were saying, where are you going? They were mocking me again. And they were saying, where are you going? Isn't it too late for you to go anywhere else? It's too late. Look at the clock. And I looked at the clock. It was like 1140-something. It's like, no, it's not too late. I'm sure I could join a meeting somewhere else. Some, something is starting now. And they're like, no, it's too late for you to start anywhere else. And it's like, no, it's not too late. And then I woke up and, and th- I think the dream makes a lot of sense, right? It's the enemy, uh, his forces, uh, his demonic forces uh, and, and their wishes and their desires to keep me silent. And they silenced me so many years ago. And, uh, and, and they're mocking and they're laughing um, and they're making fun. And they like, oh, this is what you wanted back then. Uh, this is all we need to give you to stay quiet here. This is what you can have. But in order to, to, for me to have that, uh, got to continue to allow others to be abused, uh, others to be silenced, especially women. Women in that tradition are not allowed to speak. Literally, they're not allowed to speak. Even when they're allowed to speak, we used to have these Sunday night Bible studies at someone's house, and they would tell the women, like, hey, you can speak, and you could feel the tension. Like, they, they some would speak, but you could feel the tension, like, they just, they knew, like, you know, traditionally in the, in the church, they're not allowed to speak. In the church building, usually they're not allowed to speak during meetings. They have, to, they have to wear hair coverings and they're not allowed to speak. And just, you know, there's, um, there's an abuse that goes along with those teachings. And you know what? It's time for um, the women in that church, ladies, sisters, um, you know, with all appropriateness for you to start speaking, for you to start ministering. It's time for you to be to stand up and to be heard. And again, I said with all appropriateness, um, you mean so much to me. You, so many of you have poured your life into me. And it's why I have what I have, the boldness that I have, the knowledge that I have. All of my Sunday school teachers up until Frank were women. Everything I know about scripture um, that I can remember uh, that's good comes from women. Um, the story about Gennesaret earlier was was definitely a man who mistaught me. There's there's like so many good memories that I have uh, that speak through me from women. And it's time for you to start ministering and to have a voice again. And this is what I want to do with Bio Fox. And this is what I want to do with this ministry that I want to do with my wife. We want to start having people come to our home. Uh, we want to start praying for people who have been abused by the church, people that have been silenced by their church leaders, who have been told, no, you can't speak anymore. You can't talk. You're not worthy. Your testimony is wrong, right? Because that happened to me. And we can see in this passage here, Jesus didn't do that. He never did that. Whenever somebody spoke about him, as long as it came and it was about him and it brought them to Jesus, He didn't change their testimony. He didn't silence them. He said, bring it on. He said, bring it on. 
And so we want to set captives free. We want to set the people who have been abused free. And so that is why this, this episode is dropping first as episode zero. Uh, so that I could share the testimony. I could wrap it up and show it with you in scripture um, and to show you how Jesus is different from your church, how Jesus is different from your church leaders. Uh, and you know what? It's not just like the spiritual abuse. It's the physical abuse. It's the sexual abuse. There are churches that allow their pastors and their youth pastors to sexual, sexually abuse their, their children. And then when, when people come forward and they start reporting things, they tell them to shut up and to be quiet. Those are testimonies that are also being silenced. And that's evil. It's straight up evil. And it also happens in the Plymouth Brethren tradition. And it happens in the big denominations. It happens in the Southern Baptist churches. It happens in the non-denominational churches. I've been working for nine years as a professor, and I've had a number of students come to me privately and say, Professor, you know, I know this girl who was sexually abused in the church. What do we do? I say, you know, you gotta, we got to go forward and we've got to report it. you got to call the police. We have to make a report. Oh, but professor, if I do that, then the, then the pastor's going to get in, in trouble. They're going to get arrested or the youth pastor or whatever. I say, this is the law. You have to do that. What is the name? They don't want to give you the name. And then they go forward and they don't do it. Oh, man, and it breaks my heart. Then they tell me later. Yeah, we handle it through the church. Like, what is handling the church? Well, they're disciplining the guys. Like, do they call the police? No. Why? Because the church always protects itself. It always protects the system. And at some point, we have to realize the church is not the community that God intended for us to be. It's just a system of rules. It's a building that's protected, and it's protecting its money and its wealth. And so, yeah, you know what? It's time for us to break free from that and to find the faith that Jesus offered. Find that faith. But first, you know what? There's a lot of healing that needs to happen. A lot of healing. So I want to hear from you. I want you to reach out. I'm going to have that contact page up there. Um, if you've been abused by your church and your leaders, I want to hear from you. I want to pray for you. I want to, I want to cry with you. I, want to, I just want to listen to you. Um, and by no means am I going to fix you. I'm not. I'm not a fixer. I'm not a healer. But our God is. And uh, there, there's a good chance that, that there's things that I, I can't do much with that I might have to say, like, hey, I know someone who's a counselor that can, that can help you a, a little better than, than I can with this issue. But the starting point is going to be reaching out to me and, and letting me at least hear your story. And uh, letting me, you know, just pray over you and, and to, again, sit with you and listen to you and, uh, and, and learning from you and learning about your story uh, and what you went through so that you don't have to be alone anymore. You don't have to sit in your silence. For me, it was nine years. Even my wife doesn't, she knows this story, but she hasn't heard me frame it this way with this detail uh, because I always kept it to myself. And so don't let it go on for nine years. And some of you might have been longer. It might be longer than this nine years. You know what? It's time to speak up. It's time to open up. It's time to let somebody know. And I'm more than willing and happy to be the first one. 